All right, where the daiquiris are strong and the drinks are cold, welcome back to Liquid Gold right here on WeOwnThisTown.net, the We Own This Town podcast network. It's a podcast about beverages, all the things you put in your glass. We have gone through drinking chocolate, Coquito for the holidays, sparkling wine. We talked brunch drinks and had Brad Sativa on. Today, we've got a very special guest, the bar manager of Willie B's, a new place over in the Buchanan Arts District. Mr. Derek Diggs is on the show today, has an incredible story. So just strap in, get ready for this, go for a long walk. Uh, His story from being born in Ghana, growing up in Memphis, and being plucked out of school by his dad, 15 years old, taken back to Africa to go to school, to finish high school, and to do some singing on the uh, on the world stage. So uh, get ready for that story. It's incredible. Derek makes all these beautiful frozen drinks over there at Willie B's, as well as uh, knowing his way around a daiquiri, one of his favorite drinks and something that he's making over there at Willie B's. He's got punch season coming up, which he'll talk a little bit about. But this was a really fun interview and I really enjoyed talking to him. Email us liquidgoldpod at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. And you can find all the past episodes we've done at weownthistown.net as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, all those things. We've got Monks of March coming up where we're going to be tackling Benedictine, Chartreuse, Absinthe, some beers made by monks, all kinds of fun stuff. Monks of March with the dead monk himself, Mr. Kenneth Deadman. Speaking of Kenneth... He'll be checking in with us later on in the episode with some booze news and Black History Month content. And without further ado, let's turn things over to our interview with Derek Diggs of Willie B's. You can find him at Cocktail Surgeon on Instagram. And the doctor is in. Let's turn it over to our interview right here. All right. What a pleasure here to have on the phone from Willie B's over there in North Nashville. Mr. Derek Diggs. He's the bar manager over there. Derek, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty well, man. It's great to have you on here. I know you've got a lot going on in the world of uh, making cocktails, making drinks. You had the, you did like a guest bartending pop up thing at Falcon recently. Flamingo. Flamingo. And it looked like you were lighting yeah. lighting a lot of stuff on fire. Yeah. Um. When I was at Red Phone Booth, uh, if you guys know about Red Phone Booth, uh, it's a bar, um, downtown off Rosa Parks. And when I was um, there, they are big for smoked old fashions. And usually, you know, at most bars, people use a smoking machine or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. But they they use a sink strainer, hickory wood chips, and they just use the two glasses. You know, you put um, your spirit, sink strainer, wood chips, and you put a glass on top of it. Yep. And then it infused like that. But to take it a step further, um, their head bartender by the name of Bob Rudy, who's retired with them, he did this massive flame thing. Mm-hmm. And when I got hired, they were like, hey need to meet Bob. He's going to teach you some things. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and next, next thing you know, I'm learning how to load up a olive oil miso bottle with Everclear and manipulate it with fire. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> so do you, are you using that at Willie B's every once in a while? I, I, yeah, I may do, I may do a fire show at Willie B's. Yeah. But as far as incorporating it into a cocktail, Willie B's is more of a fast paced lounge atmosphere mm-hmm. people don't want to wait on drinks mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they may think it's cool but then they're like where's my drink yeah sure they're like give me a drink and then let me watch you set stuff on fire 
we got to talking a little bit about your background. Um, I want to get into your go way back on your background a little bit later here. But um, you were bartending at Pinewood Social, learning craft cocktails, yeah. things. You went over to House of Cards and you learned a lot over there. Then it wrote Red Phone Booth. And now in this past year, you had a really unique situation in that you opened, helped open a restaurant, bar, uh, lounge in the middle of a pandemic. So what has all that yeah. been like for you? Because uh, you guys opened like last summer, I believe, right? Yeah, we opened like last August. Yeah, it was, first of all, I never, before COVID, if you would have asked me to be a bar manager, I would laugh. Uh-huh. I'm like, what? Like, why would I want to do that? Why would I want the responsibility? I didn't see any upside because as a bartender, what is your upside? Money. Right. Uh, I didn't see the upside in it. Um, but during COVID, um, everybody was forced to be still and mm-hmm. do some thinking. And I saw an opportunity at Willie B's. And Willie B's was in the neighborhood I was living at the time. And it just seemed right. Yeah. I don't know what about it seemed right. I wasn't hurting for money or anything. Uh, it just seemed right. And I went in for an interview and it, it worked out. They hired me and I never managed before. And I never, it's a daiquiri bar. Uh-huh. I never made a frozen drink outside of using a blender in my life. And sure. I'm the type of guy, if you, give, if you give me a blender at my bar, I'm going to put a fork in it and say it doesn't work anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I don't like blenders. Yeah. So it was, it was, a, it was a task. But I did a lot of research because um, I wanted it to be fresh program. I didn't want it to taste like syrup and, and that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I did my research, uh, got me a refractometer. Mm-hmm. It got to work. Yeah. Uh, but opening during the pandemic, I think we were lucky because everybody was dying to go out. Everybody was just dying to do something. Mm-hmm. So as Mayor Cooper, you know, lessened the uh, the phases, we just got busier and busier. And you wouldn't, we were looking at the numbers, you wouldn't even know it was the pandemic. Yeah, it seems like it's quite a scene over there. Um, I follow them on Instagram, so I see the videos and stuff, and there's a lot going on, a lot of music happening, a lot of frozen drinks. Oh, it's awesome. It's, it is, like I said, from from being at a speakeasy just 12 months ago, mm-hmm. when I'm chopping ice and things on fire, it's a it's a nice change of pace, and it's just been a blessing that the, that the city has supported us the way they have. For sure. So... Tell us about some of these frozen concoctions you're whipping up over there. So um, we have eight frozen drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're based, some of the names are based off areas in Memphis because that's where the owner's from. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was raised as well. But I'm just I'm just taking, like I have an orange mound daiquiri, and I'm just taking some deep eddy orange, adding a little vanilla, so it tastes like an orange creamsicle. Of course, oh, there's wow. a lot more to it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I got another one um, that's just like a blue Hawaiian called the Tighten Up. Mm-hmm. A little bit of uh, overproof rum, Bacardi, coconut, blue raspberry, lemon juice gets the job done. Wow. Um, but I also have premium daiquiris as well, um, featuring Remy and uh, Doucet. Uh The Remy uh, one is called the Remy Thing is Possible, and it's like a passion fruit peach Ooh. daiquiri. And it, it, it's our bestseller. And it falls, uh, falling second is it uh, Drive the Boat. Um, I don't know if you know, what is it? Uh, Megan Thee Stallion, a female rapper, she popularized oh, yeah. the... The phrase "drive the boat," you know, mm-hmm. which means basically drinking a bottle of liquor, uh, no cup, out the bottle. And <laughs> we we named it "drive the boat," and I promise you, you would think we'd have a C in here because everybody's drinking them. Wow! 
Well, she she had uh, her, like her year right when you guys were opening. Her year was like yeah. taken off. So mm-hmm. that works out. Yeah. So you also mentioned about how um, you're a big rum guy and you're into the flavors of like tiki and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Are you able to like break off sometimes when you get someone who wants, you know, an interesting rum drink or doesn't want one of the frozen oh, concoctions? Yeah. So what do you get one, to do when one, you kind of break off for that? One thing like I am, I am, I'm trying to be a master of the four ingredient cocktail mm. just, just to make things simple. Yeah. Uh, what is it? My, my ratio, I'm going to give a cheat code is the ounce and a half spirit, half ounce of modifying spirit. Half ounce of, uh, what is it, sweet, half ounce of stout. Yeah. And I study the flavor Bible Yeah. daily. So it's pretty easy as long as the guest is telling me the truth about things that they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy for me to manipulate anything and yeah. to make to make a delicious beverage. Mm. I just I just ask the guests, you know, to just be honest with me with the things that they like. Do they like citrus? Do they like sweet? Do they like cinnamon? You know, do they like something more spirit for us so we can get something that they would like because the worst thing I think as a bartender or as a guest is when you have a bartender that's just making you something right. because they think it's good. I want to make you something that you'll love. Definitely. When I have time, it's, it's, I'm a daiquiri guy. I, I will, I'm going to start you with a classic daiquiri just to give you some knowledge uh-huh. on what you're drinking. And then hopefully if you like that, we'll go from there and get a little bit more complex. With all these flavors swimming in your head, you got the frozen stuff you're working on. You're working on uh, really streamlined that four ingredient style that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. What are you What are yeah. you drinking when you go home? What are you making for yourself? Daiquiris. Yeah, I'm, I'm making a plantation plantation overproof daiquiri. Mm, that's the bartender daiquiri right there. Or I may uh, split plantation pineapple and I split the cross navy proof mm-hmm. daiquiri. Mm. If, if you walk in my house, you will see rum, lime juice. And I like make my own simple and sugar. <laughs> so let's talk about your your kind of your upbringing too, because you were born in Ghana. Yeah. What do do you remember anything of that, or was it just like first it couple was years? A blur, yeah. But my dad sent me back to Ghana when I was fifteen because I was a disobedient child. Oh wow. So so I went back to Ghana and finished high school and did a year of college. Oh wow. And so I don't remember much as a kid, but my my household was a bubble. It was very, my dad was very African, very Ghanaian. You know, we're eating Ghanaian food three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he didn't teach me the language growing up, mm-hmm. um, but it was a very sheltered, cultured household. Um, I thank God for it now because I, I can talk about things that people don't understand about, mm-hmm. but it was stuff that was like world news and world affairs was part of my life growing up. Yeah. Because uh, my, da- my dad was always, my dad had BBC back when, you know, you know, cable boxes were cable boxes. Yep. Uh, so it was, it was different. It was different. My mom's from Mississippi. So I got, I got, I got that same American side too. Mm-hmm. But growing up, my dad was just, it was a different, different child. I, I never would have thought I'd be a bar manager being raised by that man. <laughs> That's amazing. How's he doing now? He's good. He's actually living in Ghana. He retired about five years ago. He's a CPA with a PhD. And I watched him work his ass off, take care of me and my mom. And when I was old enough to take care of myself, he let me know, like, I'm leaving. <laughs> he did. <laughs> wow. What what on earth did you do when you were a 14-year-old kid in Memphis uh, that, that led your dad to be like, you're going okay, so to Ghana? I was a typical, you know, 
14, 15, okay, trying to find themselves. I was in suburban Memphis, so I was trying to figure out, did I want to be street or did I want to be the suburban kid that I actually was? And I was just, I never really got in big trouble because my dad didn't allow it to happen. But before that did happen, he told me, if, in his exact words, he said, if you get a C on your apartheid, I'm going to send you to Africa. And I was like, you're lying. <laughs> you're lying. <laughs> and my dad, I told you my dad's a CPA. I got a C in math. I oh, man. Ghana before, I was in Ghana before Valentine's Day. Oh, my God. That's intense. He checked me out of school midday, no warning. I knew I was going eventually because I had my passport, but he checked me out of school midday, no warning, and we left that evening. That is amazing. Were you, were you, did you have a girlfriend at the time? Yeah, I had a girlfriend. Oh my God. So you had to be like, well, okay, wait. So what was the relationship like with the girlfriend at that point? You know, we're like, we're, like, we're 15. It's like, I was, my dad had told me he was going to send me to Africa that summer before my junior year. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. So I was like, oh, I'm scot-free. Yeah. He's not going to send me to Africa. And I called his bluff. And <laughs> she she kept on telling me, like, I met your dad. He's not playing. <laughs> wow. And I, I thought he was playing. She, she seemed to know, know a little bit more than I did at that time. Man, what a move. So he comes in. He's like, pack your bags. What what was going through your head at that point? It was just like, you're taking me from everything that I know. You know how we are when we're kids. My friends, my friends. Yeah. Oh my God, my friends. But like, he saved my life, to be honest. Being in Ghana, just I realized who I was and who I wanted to be. Um, and I saw people going through things that we as Americans never had to go through. And it made me, it, it gave me a, a better respect for my father and what he's achieved. And I always got that in the back of my head. Like, this man, like a lot of people's parents say, you know, I came from nothing. Like, he came from nothing. <laughs> wow. As, as far as our standards are concerned. Mm -hmm. And to be able to be the only one of his uh, brothers and sisters that moved to America, everybody else moved to Europe, the ones that didn't leave Africa, and get his CPA, PhD, and do that, that's always in the back of my head to always do more, do more. Tell me a little bit what that was like when you when you went over there and uh, and you, you have to go through a different school system. I mean, you had to have, even though it was, you know, from the time that you were born, this was your culture, a part of your culture. But you had to have a little bit of culture shock in that. So tell oh, me specifically, yeah, what, what, um, tell me a little bit about the culture shock and then specifically what, what you mean as far as like the perspective that you got. I went there as a typical American boy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. At that point, I thought I knew what was going on. You know what I'm saying? I, I kind of, I almost resented my African side for a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I was angry. I was like, why are you sending me to this country? Like, what, what makes you think this is going to be better? You know, it's going to smell, yada, yada, yada. All, all the negative things that you could possibly think, that was in my heart, not my head. Yeah. Uh, but when I got there, it couldn't have been more different. Like, my dad has made a little bit of money, and so has his brothers. So they had big houses with maids. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, in Africa, there's no, there's no middle class. There's rich people that are living their lives, and there's poor people who can barely eat. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Either you're making it or you're not. So just to see that, it made that that's how I had to condition myself. Either I'm making it or I'm not. Either I'm struggling or I'm striving. Mm. Um, and I and I and it just made me put my back. I gotta strive. I have to strive. So it was it was going to the new school. 
I had to learn a new language. I had to learn to dumb down my English because they speak a broken English. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're in a foreign country, you don't want to be the American boy, not for too long. Right. <laughs> yeah, it gets old quick. Week. But it, it, it was awesome. I was accepted. Uh, I made friends real quick. Some people that I'm still friends with to this day. I also, back then, I was a singer. I was a, before bar, I was a singer. Yeah. Um, and I got on a American Idol spinoff show, because if you know, American Idol came from the UK. Mm-hmm. So one of the, one of the producers was Ghanaian, came to a, came to Ghana, started his own uh, multimedia company, and had a, a fake American Idol that I got on and got national notoriety for. Oh, that's so incredible. By the time I left Ghana, everyone knew who I was. Wow. Everyone. <laughs> it's like there's Derek Diggs. Yeah, literally. When I, le- when I left to go back to America with my dad, the, uh, one of the stewardesses um, or the gate ladies was like, oh, that's Derek Diggs. And then my dad was like, that's my son. And my story was that I was mixed. <laughs> that's what they told me. I was a mixed kid. And uh, they were like, oh, you can't be his father. You're too black. <laughs> they said, you're, you're too black. His father's a white man. <laughs> it was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. So you're, um, when they say mixed, were they saying American and African? No, they just some type of like African and something else. Sure. That is amazing. What a story. Yeah. So um, was there any thought? So you're like this big deal in Ghana. You've been on the American Idol. I mean, for all we know and for all you know, you could have struck up with a band and, you know. Oh, I could have lived in Ghana and stayed there. Mm-hmm. But I just had in the back of my head, my dad made something out of nothing in America. Mm-hmm. And I had everything in America. Why can't I make something out of that? Those are such intense years. Like I can remember back myself, like each year is very distinctive. You're changing a lot. You're a completely different person from the time you're 18 from what you were when you were 15. Yeah. What an amazing experience to go through. And you're, and then you become out a rock star. Yeah. Has there been talk about awesome. this being a movie? I feel like this needs to be a movie. It does. It, it does. It will be. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I got to just like recalibrate what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> Your dad comes back to America with you to stay? No. Nope. Oh, he went, okay. So he, he brings you back and then he's like, all right, I'll see you later. I'm going back. Yep. Let me, let me ask you this then. Let's talk a little bit about the, the music culture there in Ghana because what I know, so I have one compilation that's like uh, West African and psychedelic music, a lot of it from Ghana from the early 70s, uh-huh. which is really amazing. There's some incredible music that, that came out of that like early 70s period out there, but I don't really know a whole lot about the culture of music or what's going on in the last 10, 15, 20 years. So what was it like when you were on American Idol and you're singing, um, you're singing so in a, yeah, story. yeah. So I I got famous for singing John Legend's Ordinary People. <laughs> oh, wow. that's, that's, that's the song that got me on the show. Mm. And that's the song that I sang they had a final episode at the Accra International Conference Center. Mm-hmm. Holds like 50,000, 75,000 people. And I sang it at the final show. So, like, they they call me John Legend. John Legend. Oh, my God. <laughs> John Legend. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was hilarious. The music scene there, when I was there, is basically what you're hearing from Afrobeat now. Ghana okay. is the single reason for Afrobeat now. Mm-hmm. They had a... Uh, 
the um the music from Ghana back when you were talking about seventies and eighties, it was called highlight. Right. And it was, you know, you know, like smooth jazz, funk, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Not not any computer instrument. Yeah. When they started adding the computer instruments to it, add a little bit of hip hop, they called it hip hop hip life. And hip life basically is what Afrobeat is today. Wow. Were some of those sounds and influences coming through on that American Idol show, or was it like more? It was, everybody was singing like mostly secular American music. Yeah, wow. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, some people like the only they say the only reason I didn't win is because I I couldn't sing in the national language. That was that was my drawback. Uh, my dad didn't teach a language growing up, and I could only speak it broken. Mm-hmm. I can mix some some Ghanaian words in with some English words. It wasn't as heavily in the in the competition. The competition was basically all Alicia Keys, John Legend, uh, what Faith Hill, whatever songs were popular, they were singing in English. And I'm mm. talking about there were some people that could sing. I mean, it blew my mind. Like, wow, wow. I'm, I'm not talking about singing with an accent. I'm yeah. talking about singing. That's amazing. So they were singing these songs, but not necessarily as like fluent in the language. No, they were singing them. Yeah. Like, they were singing them in English. Yeah, okay. Perfect. It was shocking. And your dad was like supportive of all this. He was like, yeah, this yeah, is my, great. My dad was pissed. He was pissed. <laughs> he was, my dad was like, I sent you to Ghana to go to school, and next thing I know you're on TV. I'm like, my bad. <laughs> Sorry, dad. My, like, my, my dad went back to America to handle some business, and I was already, like, when I went to school, there was like rap groups. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, Groups of guys, just like in any other high school, yeah. that wanted to be the next big thing. And I was going to the studio, you know, after school, recording hooks on guys' rap songs. Wow. Before I got in this competition. And then the competition came, and my uncle was like, hey, you should do this. So my uncle, who I lived with, he re- he's the one who supported me mm. through that. My dad was like, I can't believe I sent you to Africa and you're on TV. And this is your dad's brother? Yeah. Wow. So he's like, what have you done to my son? Yeah, what have you done? It was like, <laughs> my uncle, I saw opportunity. Yeah. So these rap these rap groups that you're singing with, are, uh, are you like singing in English or were you like immersed I'm in the language? In yeah. Everything oh. was in English. But in school, you're, you're speaking the native language. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. What a trip. It was like, it was amazing. I like, I feel that every American kid can spend time away from their culture through those years. Right. It'll really, it'll really give you perspective on, on everything that you got going. What do you think back to that time? What do you feel like it gave you? Um, I mean, loads of perspective, of course, but um, how do you look back on that now? It just makes me appreciate everything that I have. Mm-hmm. And, and when something goes bad, I never overreact, ever. If something, you know what I'm saying, like, what is it? If the lights go out because of a storm, oh well. Like when the tornado happened, mm-hmm. a tree fell on my car. And I was like, oh, we'll be fine. My girlfriend was like, a tree fell on your car. I was like, I'm going to get another car. Yeah, it's just a car. Yeah. I, I, it's a car. You know, and that's, that's just a way, it's just a free way of thinking. Like, if there's a problem, there has to be a solution. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Don't stress. Don't stress. Don't stress. Don't get too high on the highs. Don't get too low on the lows. Stay in the middle and you'll be fine. 
not only was this like such a culture shock for you to move out there, get plucked out of school and move out there, but at that age, like we're all kind of like developing, we start developing tastes for food and you start like eating different things and, and, you know, you're a growing boy, so you're eating a lot, but that had to be another kind of side of that culture shock. But tell me a little bit about the food and drink that you remember from uh, that time period in your life. Because maybe that's so, shaping like, like some of the things you're doing now. So, like, I didn't like eating my dad's food growing up. I told you my mom's Mississippi. So, growing up in Memphis, there's not many Africans. Mm-hmm. And there's not many blacks. At least where I was at. I lived in, in Germantown, Carrierville. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, there wasn't many. I didn't have any black uh, kids that I was friends with. And I didn't have any African friends. So, I looked at my dad like an alien. Uh-huh. That man was weird, talked funny. He ate weird food. What so, kinds of food was he introducing you to in Memphis? Goat, like goat, mm-hmm. all types of soup, um, adding okra to your soup to make it slimy, you know, just different things. Yeah. But I just was like, nah, I'm fine. <laughs> like, I'll be okay. <laughs> KFC me, please. Yeah. Um, so when I went to Ghana, he let me know, like, hey, like, you're not going to be eating what you want. And Ghana has all of those things. You can get a cheeseburger in Ghana. You can get a pizza in Ghana. You can get chicken Alfredo in Ghana. But it's going to cost you mm-hmm. because the import on those things are crazy. Yeah. So I had a monthly allowance if I wanted to go out and have fun because in Ghana, they have um, venues for teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's there's like after school is out, there's a lot of places for teenagers to go and have fun and enjoy themselves. So if I wanted to go out, like I had to eat the food. Yeah. So what is it? I would go to my grandma's house and she cooked for me every day. Mm. And I, it was, you know, it was just, it's a lot of soups, um, a lot of stews. The only, like, I, I don't know if you know what tripe is. Oh, yeah. How intestine. Yep. Yeah, like, bush meat, you know, armadillo, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm. um, and different types of soup. Uh, they got this uh, stuff called fufu, and mm-hmm. it's cassava and plant, and ripe plantain, no, non-ripe plantain, boiled and mashed. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a mashed potato. But it's um, a little bit more buoyant, a little bit more thick. Mm-hmm. And just, I had to learn how to eat that. I had to eat with my hands as opposed to eating with a fork and spoon. Oh, that's right. You're eating uh, with your hands, too. You know, my hands. And eating, you know, in school, it'll be, a, you know, a big bowl of fufu, a lot of meat, and some soup. And, you know, sharing a bowl with four boys. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, that was just different to me. Yeah, um, I bet. So it, I learned to love the food. Mm-hmm. And that's something I really appreciate because when I went there, I was like, I'm not eating this crap. Yeah, I don't want this. But uh, by the time I left, I was eating Ghanaian food seven days a week. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about when you come back here and then you have like another set of culture shock. What was that like when you got back here? When I came back, it was almost depressing because it was like, this is what I wanted to come back to. I could see that. Like, yeah. Like this is, but like, I'm, I'm you're like, I was a fucking like rock me. star. <laughs> yeah, I'm 1819, and I don't have the resources to make things happen in 1819 in America. Mm-hmm. So it was, I didn't want to go back, but I didn't know what to do. You know what I'm saying? I was like, ugh, what's next? Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried college. I went to, enrolled at University of Memphis. Did that for two years. All I saw was my dad's desk. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want that. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't want that. Found out I was having a child, my first child. And God started working at Olive Garden. And then, really, the rest is history. It's a wow. restaurant. Do you recall um, 
what are the popular things to drink? I mean, I know people are drinking beer and things, but what what do you recall from the drinking culture there in Ghana? Uh, so the first time I heard bitters was in Ghana. Hmm. That's the first time I ever heard the word bitters. But their bitters are different. Where we make bitters, um, you know, Angostura, orange bitters, for just to add a little bit to a drink, mm-hmm. their bitters are full-on bottles mm-hmm. of liquor. And I don't know if it's considered a corn liquor. They call it a root liquor. Mm. Um, they, they extract it from the sap of some tree okay. or some plant. And what I'm telling you, Mike, you can open a bottle and kill a mosquito in a room. <laughs> like, serious stuff. And they drink before they eat okay. in Ghana, as okay. opposed to us. Uh huh. Like, they, they call it opening up their stomach. Okay, yeah, I like that. Okay. So, like, you, they have places called Chop Bars. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, that it would be like just a local, you know, kind of hole in the wall restaurant where you got a woman, you know, who's been cooking food for 50 years in the back, making some of the best food in the world. And they have, they call them tots. What we call shots, mm-hmm. we call them tots. And they tots. would have them in, in big mayonnaise packs. You know, like how the mayonnaise packet is bigger than the ketchup packet? Yeah. They would have it in like a mayonnaise packet. And people <laughs> would open it and drink it room temp. Whoa. Drank two of them, and I was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> and what what was in those? Like the root spirit? It, 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 it was that root liquor. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You got mm-hmm. you got like a lot of earth, some caramel, some anise. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's sometimes it's dark when it's aged. A little bit it's dark. Sometimes it's clear. The Ghanaian term for it is called akpeteshi. Mm. But that shit right there, man. Damn, like, do you have any at your house? Uh-uh, my dad's sending me some this June. Oh, wow, okay. Save and, me um, a shot. But I, I got you. And their <laughs> beer, 12%. Their beer? Holy shit. 12%. What's it taste like? Like seven Heineken <laughs> put in one glass. <laughs> oh, wow. Like and a I'm vodka saying, Heineken Boilermaker? Literally. And huh. they market beer like we do. Okay. They, like you, you would see a beer commercial every time a, a TV show went to commercial break. Mm-hmm. And the beer, it was Star, because you know Ghana, the Black Stars, mm-hmm. the Star beer, mm. Star beer. Come and get some <laughs> every day. Damn, that's amazing. That's twelve percent. Oh yeah. Because that will mess you oh, up. Yeah. I mean, every time I've drank, you know. A fair amount of anything like eight, nine, ten percent. It just never ends well. Never, never. Nah. Well, that is incredible. Um, from the University of Memphis, and you got a little, you got your kind of feet wet in the restaurant industry there. And um, what led to your move to the bar? And did you do that in Memphis? I, I did that in Memphis. So, so like, I never thought that bartenders were just the money makers. Mm-hmm. I just thought they had more freedom. And you know, being a server, you got seven people telling you what to do. You yep. got a head server, you got a service manager, then you got the, the actual GM, and you got these crazy guests. And you really don't have any control. Mm-hmm. I always thought the bartenders had a lot of more control over their day. That's initially why I wanted it. And then I, I kind of thought I could do it better. Mm-hmm. From a customer service standpoint or just making better drinks? But I could never get a job bartending. Because they were like, you don't have any experience. I'm like, I'm trying to gain it. <laughs> yeah, that's that catch twenty two. <laughs> you know, but then but then I see uh, Becky with the big boobs. 
get right behind the bar. And that just used to infuriate me. Yeah. And that was the culture in, in, in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. That was really before, you know, craft bartending became a thing. And I, I got fed up with it, and I decided to lie on one of my applications for this uh, bar and grill that opened in Collierville in Tennessee, and said I was a bartender at every place I was a server at. Yeah. And they gave me a job. And I remember my first day bartending, like, man, dude, like, you've done this before. And I was like, absolutely not, in my head. <laughs> <laughs> But then again, I didn't. I I went to culinary school. Um, that I did complete culinary school when I came back. Oh wow! So I had a good. I had a good knack for flavors. Yeah. I had a good knack for what? But it was not, nothing to write the mom about. Mm-hmm. And then I worked at a, um, a fine dining restaurant um, that had opened and was already closed. But I, I didn't really feel fulfilled in bartending. It was kind of like a means to an end. I was at that stage in my life where I was like, I was just working to work. Yep. Um, I lost the job. I lost one too many jobs in the summer and got a job at Pinewood. Mm-hmm. I drove here, got a job at Pinewood, and I got a job at the diner. <laughs> I chose the diner. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because Pinewood was paying, Pinewood was paying out cash. I mean, the diner was paying out cash. Mm-hmm. Got to the diner, realized that I think people use the term shit show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a shit show. And called Pinewood, but I was like, hey, remember me? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we do. You got you got one week to report. Some of the best training I've ever received at yeah. Pinewood. Yeah, well, Matt Toko, was he was he working with you a little yeah. bit? Yes, he was. Matt Toko, Derek Denham. That's great. They, yeah, I love they, Matt. And it's some, some things that I do standard, like one-hand air crack, you know, stirring with my hand behind my back, mm-hmm. perfect posture. It's things that I thought you had to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So when I go to other bars, they see it, they're like, whoa. I'm like, oh, my, I thought this was standard. <laughs> yeah. I thought you had to do this. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Now you're involved with the USBG here in Nashville. You know, everybody has, you know, all schools have their fraternities and sororities. So it's real cool to have a bartender fraternity to where we just respect each other's differences, strengths, weaknesses, and just share information. Yeah, that's great, man. What are you uh what are you looking forward to? Are you are you getting ready for the uh I mean I know it's probably a little bit of ways away, but are you getting ready for spring drinks and you could probably go crazy with daiquiris oh, yeah. um uh, yeah, c- like, coming up this spring. I'm I'm gonna switch up some of the daiquiris. Uh I'm moving to a punch bowl format mm-hmm. for um, our cocktails, punch bowls and dry ice, give people that wow effect. Yeah. Um I know some people wanna see me set stuff on fire. <laughs> <laughs> if they wanna see some smoke. Dry ice will get the job done. Yeah, um, you get the smoke and the fire. And just, just, just giving people something that they'll visually drink before they put it to their mouth, and then when they put it to their mouth, like, oh, my God. At the same time, I want to make things that people can make at home if they buy the ingredients. I don't want to have a whole bunch of drinks that necessarily you have to come to Willie B's to get. You want to come to Willie B's for the atmosphere, for the food, and, of course, the drinks. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't be so complicated to where you're like, what is this? Yeah. Like, I can't buy this from a store. You know, I look forward to, at some point this summer, coming over there for my um, Roots Liqueur Daiquiri. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want a, I want a Daiquiri boy. with that Ghana liqueur. It's going to be a strong boy, I promise you. That's, that sounds good. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. I loved hearing your story. That's an amazing story. And it's just getting started, buddy. That's, That's right, man. That's right. That's getting started. I'd like, I appreciate you having me on. And just for any anybody out there that um, 
wants to get into this craft, understand that it's a craft, not a job. I mean, it's something that you're going to have to work at, want to do. Um, and you can, you get the most out of it. You'll get so much out of it. I get so much more than money out of this. And I get paid at the same time. That's so, right. And you got to be open because you learn something new yeah. every day. Yep. Yeah. So like any, any, any bartenders that feel like, uh, I'm, I'm, I may need to go get a, a real job. You already have a real job, buddy. Yep. You got a real job. There's people that depend on you to do what you do great to get through their day or night. And that in itself is a blessing. That's right. You know, we had uh, we had Scott Witherow on the show. He was the he's the founder of Olive and Sinclair Chocolate, and we were talking about how chocolate got so popular and is such a big deal now in America. And he made the point that it's similar to like a drink. Like you have chocolate and you have a cocktail to celebrate, and you have chocolate and a cocktail when you're just not doing so well and feeling down about the world. So that's that's why we're here. Yep. And people need to be fed. One thing I realized about the economy, no matter what happens, people want to be fed. People want to, people want something to drink and they want to be entertained. Yep. That's right. No matter what happens. We just saw it through COVID. We saw it through the depression that we had in the 2000s. People want those three things. So if you're in that field, man, just keep it pushing, man. Everything will work out. Well, congrats to you and everything that you have going on over there at Willie B's. And, um, Congrats on the opening. It seems like it has been going really well for you guys. I just want to make sure I've got the website and the address right here. Okay, yeah. You can check out Willie Bees at thewilliebees.com. You can find them on Instagram and all the socials at Willie Bees. And they are at 918 Buchanan Street in the historic uh, Buchanan Arts District here in Nashville, Tennessee. So go see Mr. Derek Diggs over there and the crew making frozen concoctions, daiquiris, and all kinds of beautiful drinks. Thanks a lot, Derek. Hey, man, you have a good evening, man. Enjoy the rest of your week. You too, and thank you so much, and uh, have a great night, brother. Same to you, bro. All right, see you, man. All right, what a great story. Um, That was just awesome talking to Derek, and he was at Willie B's, so he had kind of a lot going on. You You could hear some of the patrons in the in the restaurant and a lot of action happening in there so thanks for taking the time with us Derek and let's turn things over for some booze news with Kenneth Deadman booze news with Kenneth Deadman February 2020 edition Mike we I think we can finally call it the winter is over we're in the sunshine, baby. From now on, open up your windows, open up your doors, within reason, depending on where you live. And for the Massachusetts lady from last week at the Kroger that was complaining that Nashville did not have enough snow plows, which is fucking absurd, there is a restaurant in Haverville, Massachusetts, uh, right off Route 125 called Lee's Asian Restaurant that was hit by errant drivers in the snow three times in eight days. So, you just check yourself. In all seriousness, though, the snowstorm really fucked up a lot of shit. Myself, who I'm nobody, but the windshield on my, on my uh, fake Corolla cracked, so I'm going to eventually have to very soon fix that, which is pretty much like nothing, but... 
Um, I was very worried about family and friends and taxes. I have two aunts, uh, some seven cousins in Texas, strewn all scattered like uh, pepper across the entire state. They all froze their asses off, but they're doing okay, as are all of my friends that have checked in. Today, I have to pay Walmart tribute, and not for their exploitation of child labor in foreign countries, but for their support of Weathered Souls Brewing Company out of San Antonio, Texas, the only black-owned brewery in Texas as of now distribution and social initiative beer brand black is beautiful an imperial stout whose label and recipe is wide open to any brewery that is willing to make it just donate a certain percentage of their profits to a local charity of their choice that focuses on uh, racial and social justice now black is beautiful beer should be available depending on what's going on after the storm and most all walmart stores in texas eventually something like 300 walmart stores in the south the movement is growing in exponential manner so hopefully we can get these on everyone's shelves sometime in the middle of the summer when everyone enjoys crushing imperials stouts and while we're at it i just can't get off the subject of texas now h-town's only black owned distillery has come out with highway vodka which is made from a six-time distilled blend of corn mash and hold hemp seed thank god someone got on this I guess depending on where you are in the United States, getting hemp seed or marijuana seed, period, can be a little bit tricky for your brewery or distilling purposes, but they're high in very delicious fat and do absolutely what the owners of Ben Williams and Wendell Robbins were. That's exactly what they wanted to do to begin with was mess with the weed seed because i figure that they're getting in front of the inevitable and the inevitable is coming sooner than later baby highway vodka is available in florida and georgia texas and california and hopefully very soon on my goddamn porch i guess as we close out black history month is i don't think that we're gonna record again before the end of february officially like to give a shout out to the man that taught me how to swim, former YMCA swim instructor, also Chattanooga swimming icon Ken Buchanan. Also, if you uh, if you were to uh, go to the Red Bank community pool in in northern Chattanooga, you will find it renamed after him, the Ken Buchanan community pool in Red Bank, uh, commemorating over 30 years of his uh, competitive coaching and community outreach in the city of Chattanooga. Fucking thrilled to have learned to have swam from a man that thought I was going to drown. Now, I wasn't supposed to learn how to swim this way, like in, in retrospect, but 
I was terrified of going off the diving board without the floaties on my arms, and Ken stood there and stared me down for what seemed like probably for for him like 30 minutes, just trying to get me off the diving board without floatifs. Ken was calm, collected, and knew how to deal with a crybaby that was scared of swallowing a little water or getting it up his nose. He told me to jump down there, and I and I was safe, and he was there to catch me. I jumped off, and he did not catch me. In fact, he he kind of backstroked, and before I knew it, I was in I was in the the, the shallow part of the swimming pool, and I was laughing giggling because I had learned how to swim and he made it both incredibly challenging but also incredibly fun and it's always been rewarding to know how to swim and I always think of Ken Buchanan um, every time that I do have fun swimming and Mike I guess that's all I got on my end I hope you're doing all right Thank you, Kenneth. We look forward to uh, getting you back for Monks of March, as you are the dead monk. A lot of content coming up with Chartreuse, Benedictine, some of these different beers that are made by monks. Anything that's made by a monk, we want to talk about it in March. So we look forward to that. And uh, thanks for listening. As always, follow us, give us a rating, and check us out at weownthistown.net. Thanks to producer Michael Eads. And everybody over at We Own This Town, thanks to Jess Matchin for the Liquid Gold logo, Upright T-Rex for the tunes. Our cocktail correspondent, Jessica Backus, will be with us next time. For my co-host, Mr. Kenneth Dedman, I'm Mike Wolf, and we'll see you next time on Liquid Gold. <laughs>